All right. Oh, guys, look at me. I still got bags under my... Oh, I got to stop this. I got to shut this phone off. Hold on a second. All right. Good morning, everyone. A uh, very sleepy morning for me this morning. <laughs> got some bags under my eyes. Looking kind of rough. Hope everyone's having a great day. Hope everyone had a, a really uh, fantastic Thanksgiving. Uh, my Thanksgivings last uh, about three days. We have all kinds of, you know, we make our rounds, make our, uh, uh, have our visits with family and extended family and everything. And I tell you, it's, uh, in some ways, I'm kind of glad it's over with uh, just because it's so tiring. It wears me out. But uh, we had a great Thanksgiving. I hope you all did too. And uh, let's see here. Hey, there, there's Miguel again. Welcome back, man. I don't think we saw you last week, but uh, good to see you. All right. So everybody knows the deal here. Uh, it's pretty much, um, pretty much an open forum. You guys can feel free to, uh, you know, plug anything away that or plug any things you want in the chat there. And um, you know, I'm just going to get cranking here. One thing, uh, um, one thing that I've always been told, and uh, one thing that my mentor certainly recommended to me was, and it's it's relating to uh, to subject two deals. We're going to talk about subject two deals today. And uh, one of the things that I never really forgot, uh, and it always sticks in my mind, and I actually have to remind myself from time to time because when I when I do get these subject two deals, or when I um, when I'm talking to a seller about doing a deal and, uh, and I'm thinking, you know, in my head, I'm thinking subject to one of the things I always have to remember. And I always have to tell myself is just because you can do a subject to deal doesn't necessarily mean that you should. And so today, what we're going to talk about is we are going to talk about situations and reasons why, uh, or, or when it is not okay to do a subject to deal, when it's not okay to buy a property subject to. Let me just make sure before we get started here, I want to make sure everyone can hear okay, everyone can see okay. Hey, good morning there. I, you guys know the deal here. With I think there's a there's some sort of Facebook link that I can send, uh, and so that I can you guys can you can click on it, and then I think I can see the names, but. Uh, whoever that Facebook user is there, just understand that I, I don't know who, who that is. So, uh, but good morning to you regardless. All right, everybody good. Everybody can hear and everything is, uh, everything is cool here. Let me get rid of some graphics here. Let's throw up the chat. Uh, let's see, how do I do that? There we go. Let's throw the chat up here. All right, guys, chat's live. You guys want to throw anything in the chat, ask any questions. Maybe you have uh, uh, some comments, whatever you want to do. This is an open forum. All right, guys. So when is it not okay to buy a property subject to? And I've got my little checklist here. I'm going to I'm gonna run through it. I'll go back and I'll check the chat from time to time. I'm the only one running this thing. So uh, so you know, I'll, I'll get to your questions or your, or your comments. So, uh, so let's not worry about that. Okay, so first of all, there are a uh, a few criteria that when we're evaluating subject to deals, 
And I'm talking about on the I'm talking about on the monetary side. I'm not talking it has nothing really related to do with the property itself. I'm just talking about when we're evaluating our deals for uh, for profitability, right? And our main thing is cash flow. We, I mean, if you've never been, uh, if you've never been cash poor, if you've never, uh, you know, I own uh, right now a couple million dollars in, in real estate and, uh, you know, I couldn't imagine what it's like, you know, in fact, one of those, a couple of those properties are not actually, they're actually just paying for themselves. So we're not actually uh, making money on those particular, we're, we're making money, but the money's going right back into fixing the property. And it happens to be uh, an apartment complex. But uh, so being cash poor is no fun. So we concentrate solely on cash flow. I mean, almost solely, almost, not 100%. But uh, so, so anyway, when we talk about the monetary side of subject to deals and evaluating for those deals, uh, there are three main criteria that must be met for every single deal that we do or that we buy subject to. And again, I, I, I'm going to repeat myself. We're only talking about subject to deals here today. Okay. So um, these three criteria must be met on every single subject to deal. All right. Number one is our upfront costs. Well, so what I'm talking about is I'm talking about, um, you know, maybe you, you're offering cash to your seller. Maybe you, um, you know, you're going to have closing costs regardless, uh, whether, uh, you know, whether you're closing at a, well, you should be closing at a title company, but uh, some of us, um, sometimes that opportunity is not available. So it would be cash to seller, things like cash to seller, closing costs. Arrearages are a big one, especially coming out of this, this whole COVID thing. Um, we're seeing a ton of uh, properties that have been, um, that have arrears on them now. And um, it's any of these costs really that, that put you into this negative equity, I call it negative equity territory. All right. So one of our criteria is that if, you know, no matter what our acquisition costs are, if that puts you into negative equity that you cannot break even with in, uh, if you can't break even in 12 months time, then it's probably not going to be a very good idea for you to uh, to buy that property. All right, so <clears throat> let me just give you an example. Let's say that um, let's say that you're buying a house for 200k, or it's worth 200k, and this is fair market value. So when when we buy a house, we like to we like to evaluate it based on fair market value versus after repaired value. So you guys know this is ARV, uh, but when you buy we like to base our numbers off of fair market value. Fair market value for us is simply what will the property sell for today? Meaning, you know, what, uh, you know, what is it worth right now? What is the, um, what's the ARV? All right. Minus the repairs that gives us, that gives us a fairly good fair market value. What would it sell for? If we put it on the MLS, what would it sell for today? So we work off of fair market value when we buy. <clears throat> excuse me, we work off of ARV when we sell. Okay, so if we're going to sell or finance or if we're going to flip a property, we work off of ARV then, all right? All right, so you're, you're buying a house that's worth fair market value 200K. The seller owes 180 on their loan. 
but they are now in arrears. They've stopped making their payments, uh, you know, or maybe they are coming out of this COVID thing and now they have, they owe 25K in arrears, all right? Right there, you are negative 5K. You're negative 5K in equity. You've moved into negative equity territory. So the question is, can you earn enough cash flow to break even in 12 months time? So can you earn, is your cash, and I'm talking about net cash flow. So in this deal, you would have to, you would have to make, you know, 600 bucks a month off of this deal, net. That's how much you'd have to net. Uh, it's not unheard of to do that. I mean, that's totally, uh, totally doable. So if that can be done in 12 months time, then it might be okay to go ahead and, and, uh, and check, you know, check this box that, uh, uh, that your upfront costs will cover the deal that you're getting ready to buy. Ideally, we like to be in my business, we like to be around no more than 90% loan to value on any of our deals. So, uh, if you don't know what that means, that's essentially, you know, if we're buying a house, I'm going to use round numbers here, easy numbers. If you're buying a hundred thousand dollar house, well, I'd like that loan, the loan that's on it to have, uh, have a balance of no more than 90 K. All right. However, we, we are able to move into this kind of negative equity territory because on those types of, well, in fact, all of my, all of my single families, I'm going to sell or finance my single families. And so what that allows me to do is if I'm going to finance someone that allows me to take a down payment and my down payment, I can use that down payment money that I receive from my buyer to go in and I, I can either make a direct payment on the loan, the underlying loan, or I can put that in my pocket. Uh, generally what I do is, um, if I, if I'm already at my 90% LTV, generally what I will, I will do is I will plug away all of my reserves, um, all the reserves I'm going to need for that property for three to six months. And, um, on occasion we'll put away, uh, we'll put away money for, uh, if we have to foreclose on somebody. All right. So it depends on how we actually convey that title to our buyer. So we can get that 90% LTV from our buyer's down payment. And so that, that deal would actually support itself. All right. So, um, that's one way that you can do it. You can still buy without, with no equity or very little equity, except now what you're going to do when you, when you sell or finance to that, to your buyer, your owner, occupant buyer, you're going to take a down payment. First, first, you're going to raise that, that price a little bit. Cause you're going to, you're going to charge a premium because you're seller financing. All right, then you're going to charge a down payment. And so now that down payment can, is part of your equation. Um, and so what I would recommend in those cases is make sure that you have a, um, a set kind of a set percentage of down payment that you'll accept on any one of your properties. That way you can kind of, when you're evaluating your deal, you can, uh, you can actually figure, use that figure, use that percentage on, uh, in, in the calculation of getting your deal done. You know what I mean? All right. <clears throat> hope that, uh, hope that makes sense. That makes sense to everyone. All right. Okay. Uh, the second criteria is cash flow. So we have upfront costs, right? Second criteria is going to be cash flow. Uh, now keep in mind, 
all of these criteria have to be met. They must be met. It's not one or the other. It's not, you know, uh, we'll make up for it using this other, this other way, this other, um, this other profit source. They all have to be met. This isn't, this is not an and or situation. All right. So our second criteria is cash flow. If you don't have a minimum monthly cash flow requirement set for your business, I recommend you go ahead and do that immediately. So what that allows us to do is say, you know, you know, our let me just give you an example. Our minimum monthly cash flow requirement on any deal we do is $350 a month minimum. So, and that's 350 per month per unit. So if it's an apartment building, we need to be able to make 350 bucks a month per unit on that apartment building. Um, and it doesn't matter if this is a rental or if this is a seller finance deal um, where we're where we're seller financing a buyer, we have to make 350 bucks a month. All right. So go ahead and uh, and figure out what that is for you in your market, figure out what you're comfortable with. And you can pretty much base your deals, your cash flow around that minimum requirement. Instead of just kind of, uh, you know, going in blind and saying and seeing what the deal will actually pay, you set a criteria for what you're willing to accept. That's what I'm trying to say. All right. So monthly cash flow, it has to meet our monthly cash flow requirement. That's our second criteria. Our third criteria is our, um, they are back in profit. So this is going to be profit whenever we, uh, if we sell. Or if we are seller financing a deal and the buyer is going to refi, it would be for when that buyer ultimately refis out. Okay. For us, we're not real stringent on this. For us, as long as we are 100% positive that we are not going to have to come to the closing table with any cash whatsoever, then we're pretty much good with that. Now, 99% of the time we're going to make, we're going to make money on the back end as well. But some, you know, you might run into a deal that, uh, maybe wouldn't provide for that. <clears throat> and we're really okay with that because again, we are, we are concerned with cash flow. Cash flow is of utmost importance for any business. So, um, so if we're a hundred percent positive that we're not going to have to come to the closing table with any cash whatsoever upon the sale or refi. We're good because we've got the, you know, however many years of cash flow that we've earned. And like I said, we don't, I, I really honestly can't think of one deal where we haven't made money on the back end. So uh, it's very rare. We would like to make as much as we possibly can. Um, so those are our first three criteria. All right. And I'm, and again, I'm talking mainly this is primarily the monetary side. This is about evaluating your deals for profitability. All right. So we've got upfront costs, cash flow, and then back end profit. Those all three have to work. The deal has to be able to pay for all of those. All right. Okay. Our second kind of category here um, has to do with the seller. And if you are dealing with a potentially, um, I, I say litigious, but then I but then I feel like I have to define what litigious means. Um, so I'm just going to call it a pain in the ass seller. If you're dealing with a pain in the ass seller, 
that would be a situation where you probably do not want to do a subject to deal. And honestly, this is the reason why we don't, um, we don't close per se. We don't close sub two sellers. Okay. We're not salesmen at this, at this point. Um, but I, I want to drive that home. We are not closers when it comes to subject to deals. We don't do any kind of sleazy sales pitches. We don't, uh, we're not trying to convince them to do a subject to deal with us. We're not begging them to do it. Um, we're not asking them to, uh, to try it out. None of that stuff. These folks have to be on board with this, right? We don't, the very last thing that you want is a seller that you are in a potentially long-term relationship with. And that's ultimately what we're trying to do here. We're trying to, um, we're trying to utilize those super low interest rates on the loan that they have on that property already for as long as we possibly can. So that translates into being in a relationship with a seller for a potentially a very long period of time. And so you want to have the, um, the utmost respect between yourself and your seller. You know, it's a two way road there. You're going into business with your seller. Um, also, I'd like to mention that if you've done your job right, you should be getting long-term commitments from your subject to sellers. Okay. Some situations won't allow that, that, you know, a seller may want to be cashed out in, you know, one or two years. We never make any promises to our sellers on when their property is ultimately going to be paid or when that loan is going to be paid off. We never make that promise. We certainly never put it in writing. It's, uh, and it's not, I've kind of said it before. Um, I've kind of said it before. If you, if well, I kind of lost my train of thought and then go back to this. Seems low for effort and risk. You prefer 500 for, for sure. I think that's, uh, I think that's John hundred percent, man. It's, a, it's whatever your tolerance level is. It also depends on what your exit strategy is. So uh, John says it seems low for the effort and risk. I prefer 500 a month, 100%. Uh, and I'm pretty sure, John, you're you're out in, uh, in California, a little higher cost of living. So let's say this is a very personal, uh, this is a very personal thing. All right. Um, all right, back to this, back to this bullet point here. Um, we don't make promises on when we're going to pay that loan off. And primarily the reason is because it's not because we're trying to take advantage of anyone. It's because you don't know where the market's going to be in two years. You have no idea. You don't know where the market's going to be next year. We just went through this thing. Nobody had any indication. There were, nobody was able to predict what happened with the real estate markets last year and these crazy, crazy, uh, these crazy valuations and these, these increase in valuations over the past year. It's, and bananas. So that is the reason that we do it. It's a, uh, it's a way to mitigate risk. And again, it sounds, uh, it sounds as if we're trying to get over on somebody, but it's really not the reason why it really isn't. So the last thing on earth that you, that you want though, with these sellers is some kind of a, a, a jaded, a jaded seller. You don't, and I can speak this, speak to this from personal experience. I have, uh, I think I've told many of you on these calls that, uh, I had someone up until about, 
uh, about a year and a half ago that I bought this property. Uh, I mean, this was six, seven years ago that just for it's, she's made my life a living hell for, uh, <laughs> for a, a lot of years now. And up until about a year and a half ago, that's the last time I heard from her. I may hear from her again, uh, hear from her again. I don't know. But, uh, but yeah, it was, it was pretty rough. And quite honestly, she has, uh, you know, I made a mistake and she, she has every right to be, to be pissed at me. Um, you know, it's just some things that happen and, uh, some things that you can't avoid this one, this particular situation, I can get into it a little bit later, but I actually could have avoided this. I just made a mistake. I made a mistake with her and, uh, and she's never let me live it down. So, um, so yeah, we want to be point number two is that we want to be dealing with sellers who are on board with us. We want people, uh, we actually, what we really like to do is we like to bring our sellers in. We like to give them little jobs and little things to do, you know, things that to bring them in and be a part of the team. They have to be, they have to be a part of our team and, and a, a solution for us to get this, to get the deal closed. All right. So that's ideally where you want to be. You want to have someone who's totally on board with you, uh, understands what's going on. Uh, they're a part of the team. They're actively participating in getting the deal done. All right. All right. Number three. So we've got, we've got our deal evaluation aspect of it. We've got the seller dealing with the seller aspect of it. Number three is, uh, has to do with terms of the loan that you're taking over. Of course, there's, you know, you're going to do your evaluation. You're going to find out whether or not the deal will cash flow for you and all that good stuff. That's not really, really what I'm talking about. I'm talking about mainly adjustable rate mortgages. <clears throat> for the most part, you want to stay away from adjustable rate mortgages. I say for the most part, because uh, with, with adjustable rate mortgages, there is something called a lifetime adjustment cap. And this is basically the ceiling for how much a lender can raise that rate during that term. Okay, so there's, you know, you may get in, uh, you may have a, a seller who has an arm that is currently sitting at five and a half percent, but that lifetime adjustment cap may be at 8%. So you're never going to know, you're never going to know when that rate is going to, or could potentially rise. So I say avoid these for the most part, the most part, because uh, you, if you can be super conservative with this, if you can run your figures and your numbers at that 8% cap and all of your numbers still work out, then you're going to be, you know, you're going to be okay. So it can only, if you, if you run your numbers at that 8% cap and you're super conservative and that's how you evaluate that deal then you can only win if that rate drops. So always evaluate. If you're going to get into an arm, you have to find out from your seller what that lifetime adjustment cap is and then run all of your numbers at that cap because it can never go above that cap. All right, so that's number three. Number four, this is um, this one's kind of hard for me to explain, admittedly. Um, and it's really, it's really a simple concept. I just have trouble explaining it. If you are expecting to pull equity out of a deal that you buy subject to using a, uh, a home equity line of credit or maybe a second mortgage, 
from, and these are, these are, these would be from institutional, uh, institutional lenders. All right. If you're expecting to do a HELOC or put a second mortgage on a property that you own and that you've taken subject to, I will tell you that institutional lenders do not like to lend on properties where your name isn't on the first mortgage. All right. I have not found one. I, you know, I've been doing this. I've been buying for, I've been buying subject two for seven years now. I have not found one that, that would, uh, that really likes that scenario. All right. If you find one, if you find one, don't ever lose their number. Okay. Uh, and secondly, if you happen to find one, make sure you uh, share their name and number with me. I'd appreciate that. Uh, but yeah, it's it's virtually impossible to um, to do a, a home equity line on, or a second mortgage on a property that you own subject to. Very very difficult. All right, so if you've got a ton of equity in a deal in a in a subject to deal, let's say the terms on that subject to deal are so good. And it cash flows so well, but you've got all of this equity sitting in there that you'd like to tap into. There are a couple of other ways besides institutional lenders that you can do that. One of those ways um, is a, a regular old line of credit. All right. And um, uh, a line of credit, there are many, many ways to get a line. You can get a personal line of credit, a business line of credit. But let's just say that you're applying for you know what? I'm going to, let me, let me pause this real quick. Let me just make sure we've got, uh, uh, Florida. Okay. All right. Yeah, guys, if you have any questions about any of this stuff that I'm talking about, uh, go ahead and, uh, and throw it there in the chat. All right. So, um, one of the ways you can pull that equity out is a line of credit. All right. So you, you're applying for a line of credit. Um, and this, like I said, this is just a regular old personal or business line of credit. Imagine this, if you will, try and try and uh, try and build this picture in your mind. What is the first thing that a lender is going to ask for when you are applying for a line of credit? Go ahead and throw that in the chat. What's the very first thing that you, it's going to be a requirement for you to, to show your lender if you are trying to get a personal or business line of credit? I've got some takers here. I would, I would love to see your answers. All right. Very first thing you're going to want to see is a personal financial statement. And it doesn't matter if you're trying to, if this is a business or a personal line of credit, they're going to want to see your personal financial statement. All right. Your personal financial statement is going to list all of your assets and all of your liabilities. Assets are going to be things like, oh, I don't know, all the properties that you own, that those, those would all be assets. Okay. And Really, those aren't those aren't really assets, but in the bank size, those are assets. Those are assets that they can take from you. Okay, so they're assets to the bank. They're really not assets to you if they have if they have uh, if you have loans on them. But they those will be listed in the assets column. All right. So, and this could include all of the houses that you've bought that you've purchased subject to. Okay, so in that in that assets column will be properties that you purchase subject to. You're going to want to list those. Now in your liabilities column, now you're going to list all of the, all of the liabilities or I'm just going to stick with houses, all of the loans that you owe. Okay. So all, all of the mortgages that are on those houses are going to be listed in your, 
liabilities column. Okay. So let me ask you this. Do you list the loans that aren't in your name in the liabilities column? Do you think you do that? Are those loans your liability? If you've, if you've purchased a property subject to, and the loan is in your seller's name, is that your liability? The answer to that question is no. So if you can imagine this personal financial statement where you have all of these assets, you have, you know, maybe you've got some, uh, some properties you've purchased with institutional money. Uh, and now you've got listed properties that you've purchased subject to the liability portion of those. Of course, you're going to list the loans that are in your, your business name or your personal name. You're going to list those as liabilities. Okay. So, um, you know, those are just going to be there. They have to be there, but the loans that, uh, are listed in somebody else's name, those are not your liability. This is kind of that, um, this is that inherent nature, this inherent, uh, non-recourse nature of, of subject to, right? If you stop making payments tomorrow, is that reflected on your credit profile? And if it's not, that is not a, that is not your liability. Okay. Now, I absolutely would not recommend, all right, that you stop making payments on uh, on the loans that you've taken subject to. I am I am simply trying to show you here that this is another method for pulling equity using a line of credit. Do not stop making those payments. That's not what I'm telling you. It can get you into a lot of legal trouble if you do that. All right, it's not what I'm trying to say. So, really, the gist of this is going out and getting in line of credit using those properties subject to in your personal financial statement, but you're not listing the loans because they're not your liability. All right. There's somebody they're in somebody else's name. You're not legally liable for those. You have not signed a, a note. You haven't signed a, um, there's no mortgage or deed of trust that, that has your name on it. So it's not your liability. Okay. All right. A uh, couple other ways, let me look at my checklist here. A couple of the ways you can do this, meaning pulling equity out of these deals. And really, these are ultimately fantastic sources for, for long-term lending. One of private lenders, private lenders. And we target self-directed 401ks for this. So if somebody goes out and, um, you know, they have a self-directed 401k or IRA, uh, they can direct those funds into any investment that they, that they well, not any investment that they choose, but uh, there is leniency there, leniency there with these custodians. So we like to, we like to ask people who have self-directed 401ks or IRAs to become private lenders so that we can pull money out of our subject to deals. So we can pull, I say money, we can pull equity out of our subject to deals. So they just lend on the equity in that deal. And, uh, you know, we, then we start making payments to them as well. Another way to do this. And one, one way that I really, really love, I prefer, I actually prefer this, this way, this method, and that is through selling, uh, selling equity to a partner. So equity partners, it's gonna be very, very similar to, um, to private lending, except that we are giving them an equity position in the deal. 
So most of the time, it just, it depends on, on, depends on our, our requirement or our needs on how much of that ownership we actually give to the, to our, to our uh, new equity partner. Um, But we've given as much as a third, we've given as much of, as much as 33% of our equity to a, to an equity partner to pull, to be able to pull cash out. Okay. So uh, you can get very, very creative with that. Give me just one second. Whoops. <coughs> Excuse me, guys. All right. So um, what does it mean to have an equity partner? An equity partner, they are they have ownership in this deal. They have a percentage of the ownership. So that means they have a percentage of the cash flow. And they have a percentage of the net profits upon the sale of the property. So they get to share, they get to realize and share in, in all of that with you. They're, they're a true partner. <clears throat> One of the promises that we make to our, uh, to our equity partners is that they will never have to put another dime into that deal. So uh, what that means for us is if, if we lose a tenant or we lose a buyer, uh, that equity partner may not see a check for that month or for the, for the entire time that that property is vacant. But we're never going to ask them to put more capital into that deal. That's one of the perks of being one of our equity partners. And uh, I'll tell you, I've never had, I've never had anyone turn me down for that. And really, really what we have to do is we have to kind of, um, we have to, I don't want to say over borrow, um, but we have to make sure that what we're, that what our equity partner is putting into the deal is going to cover us for those periods where we might experience a vacancy or maybe have to do some repairs or something like that. So, um, but we'll never ask them to put another dime into the deal. And uh, it's been really, really great for us. I mean, it's been probably one of the better, uh, better ways to, uh, uh, to pull equity out of these subject to deals. Uh, let me check the chat here. All right. All right. looks like we've got, uh, looks like everybody's just kind of have a lot of activity in the chat this time, but Hey, I'm, I'm okay with it. So, um, all right. So for those, those are, those are my main, uh, those are the main, t- main points that I wanted to hit this morning. So this is all, all when it's not okay to buy a property subject to, this is when you don't want to buy a property subject to. So let's just do a quick, uh, a quick recap on this. Number one, the deal must pay for itself. That means uh, all upfront costs. Remember we talked about, um, you know, if you can't, if you cannot, if you are in negative equity territory and that negative equity can't, you can't have a, if your break even point is beyond 12 months, we just won't do the deal. If it's within 12 months, then, then we're probably going to be okay with it. All right. Then we talked about monthly cash flow. Figure out what your monthly minimum, <clears throat> your monthly minimum is. Ours happens to be, I'm in St. Louis. Ours happens to be 350 bucks a month per unit. All right. And then uh, on the back end, you know, we love to make money on the back end, but again, we, we concentrate mainly on cash flow. So uh, as long as we don't have to come to the closing table with any cash, we're going to, we're probably going to be okay with it. 
All right, point number two was to uh, stay away from problem sellers. If um, if your seller is going to mention um, legal actions while you're negotiating, uh, I would just walk away. I would walk away from that because um, nine times out of ten, if that's what they're if that's what they promise, or if that's what they're telling you up front, the pro- they they may just deliver on that. And nobody in a lawsuit wins except for the attorneys. And I just refuse to do any kind of deals with a uh, with a litigious seller. Uh, either walk away or offer to buy their house in some other with some of their former financing, whether that's cash or, uh, you know, uh, a note and a mortgage, whatever, but just don't do a subject to deal with them. Okay. Point number two, uh, talking with sellers, don't be a closer on subject to deals. You have to work as a team with your seller uh, to get to get a subject to deal closed. All right. I mean, it's just so important. Uh, and then you, you know, if you can do this, you can avoid uh, any kind. Well, you're never going to be able to avoid legal actions entirely. But if you're on board, if you have all the right disclosures, everybody's everybody's up front. You've got you've kept them informed of literally everything that, that's going on. If you can do that and you can be totally transparent with them, uh, you're going to be successful with this. Do not make promises that are not 100 percent accurate. And I'm telling you, I, I don't know, I guess maybe I'm just, I, I'm kind of the jaded buyer, I suppose, because, uh, you know, I, as, as much as I tried to do correct in that one bad deal, I, I talked about, you know, it's still, and, and everything's been made, been made whole. It's just the idea of uh, this individual that I'm talking about is just the idea that I didn't do this one thing, um, that I promised to do. Uh, so make sure you're you're 100% accurate on on the promises that you make. Point number three was to stay away from arms for the most part. Uh, evaluate your deals. If you're going to get into a, a, a situation where you're going to buy a property subject to that has an adjustable rate mortgage on it, make sure that you are running your numbers at the lifetime adjustment cap, whatever that's going to be. I would not make a promise to buy a property subject to if it has an arm on it, unless you can see you can actually read the terms of their loan. So you will need not just the mortgage statement. You're going to need to see the, the note. You're going to need to see the, the terms of that loan. All right. Point number four was don't buy into a subject to a uh, subject to deal uh, expecting to pull equity out. All right. Unless, of course, you have private lenders who can lend on that equity or you have people that will uh, lenders that will buy into into a partnership, an equity position on that deal and become a partial owner with you. And again, I'm going to reiterate uh, what my mentor told me a long, long time ago. It's never, it's never lost. It's never been lost on me. It's always been at the forefront of my mind when I'm doing a subject to deal. And that is just because you can do a subject to deal does not always mean that you should. All right. And, uh, and these reasons that I just gave you are reasons why you should not do a subject to deal. All right. Okay, guys. Wow. This actually went longer. I, I've been talking for a long time. It doesn't seem like it's see when I, when I enjoy what I do, it just doesn't seem like, uh, it doesn't seem like it's, it's work. So it's awesome. Does anybody have any questions? If you have any questions, go ahead and post them in the chat. Happy to, um, 
happy to answer them. And also, uh, if anybody has any suggestions, I, I'm always open to suggestions. If anybody has uh, any comments, um, maybe some things that you uh, that you do personally in your business, and and uh, you know that could help out anyone else on the chat or on this call, by all means, go ahead and post it. Okay, folks, I think that's going to be it this morning. Um, I didn't actually realize that I talked this long, but I guess uh, I guess time got away from me. So thank you very much for joining me this morning. Um, if you guys out there on Facebook are not, uh, not subscribed to our YouTube channel, I would really appreciate the, uh, the help. You know, head over there. What is it? Like, subscribe, uh, like, subscribe, notification bell. That's what it is. All right, guys. I think that's going to do it for me. I really, really appreciate everyone who jumped on this morning. Um, you guys can find us over there at sub2empire.com. Uh, if you have any questions, we have a little, uh, we have a little, um, a button there on on the website where you can book a call with us. We'd love to chat with you. Otherwise, you guys have a uh, a great remainder of your weekend, or if this is your new week. Have a great week. I will catch you guys uh, next Sunday. All right. Take care, guys.